morning, church. We are so glad that you're here this morning. We're going to declare Jeremiah 10 this morning. There is no one like our God. He is great and he is full of power. If you believe that, church, let's sing. Yahweh, Yahweh, holy is your name. I don't want to take it in
you that you love us, Lord, and help us to be content with the circumstances that we have. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. Wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I can do to let you down. It doesn't take a trophy to make you proud. I'll never be more loved than I am right now.
God, you are enough. And you are so good. In the good times and the darkest of our times, Lord, you are good. Church, you know the song. Sing it out with me.
Lord, you are loving. You are never changing. You are good. You are steadfast. You are faithful, God, and we just want to thank you for that. Praise you for your faithfulness, God. You will never fail us.
Hey, good morning. Welcome to Camarillo Community Church. Uh, if you're new to us, my name is David Hurtado. I am one of the pastors around here. And so we just want to welcome you. Everybody's here, uh, whether you're online, whether you're on campus, whether you're in the building, on the patio, in the video venue. We're just glad that you are with us. And today we're landing the plane, as it were, in the series All In. And everybody says, oh, man. Anybody? <laughs> yeah, it's been a great series, but next week we start a new series called In the Works, and, and really it's a series that kind of describes how we're all in progress as a church. The church is in the works, we are in the works, and we're going to kind of talk about what is distinctive to our church, what makes us unique, what makes KMCC unique to itself amongst uh, a myriad different type of churches, you might find yourself saying, I really like this about this church. I really like this about KMCC. And you will find, if you stay in the next series with us, that it's probably because it's one of our distinctive. It's probably because it's one of our values that we push to the front. And so I welcome you back next week uh, with us as we go through that series together. But today, and to everyone's disappointment, uh, we land a plane with the All In series. And it's a series where we, if you've been here for the last six weeks, you might, ask your, you might find yourself asking this question during this series, how All In am I? Like how truly All In am I, am I to this whole thing? To this, this worldview of Christianity, am I really All In? Or, or am I kinda All In? And I really love the idea of all in because I'm a poker fan. I like to play poker. And uh, it's like the epitome of like the climax of the game, uh, especially in Texas Hold'em. I'm betting that my cards are better than your cards. And well, in fact, I'm willing to put everything behind it. I'm going all in. I'm at the height of vulnerability in the sense that I could lose and have to go home and the height of confidence in knowing that my hand is better than yours. And so I'm going to push everything to the center and say, that's how much I believe in this hand. And we've been kind of taking that metaphor and liking it to our faith. How all in am I to my faith? How much do I really believe and have confidence in this to the point where I'd be willing to be vulnerable enough to push everything in? Now, I mentioned several times in this series that we're not in need. And I will echo that again. We are not in need. <laughs> this is not coming from a motivation like, oh my gosh, they're going to close the doors on us. The lights are about to turn off. We have no gas, water, you know, uh, the mortgage, we're in default. Nothing like that is happening. Quite the opposite. In fact, our elders have done such a good job of preparing this place that we have months of reserves. It has nothing to do with need. Uh, there's, there's, there, we're not dealing with phone calls to collections or anything like that, I promise you. Uh, now, you know, in the summer, we do take on like some, you know, some red ink during the summer. That's kind of typical of a church. And we usually come right out of it. And, and if there's ever a problem with that, we would let you know. And then generally speaking, the church has stepped up and solved that problem. So it's not a place of need. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you stick with us in the fall, you're going to see that we have some dreams of doing things above and beyond what we're doing right now. That if God would give us favor, we could do some amazing things here. So we're not in need, quite the opposite. We're surging forward. So why do this series? Because, well, Jesus seemed to talk a lot about it. And if Jesus seemed to talk a lot about it, then we should talk about it as well. In fact, I'm going to show you two stories today, two of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told, two parables on this matter and on this topic. We'll look at that today together. But before I do that, I want to start with a story to kind of introduce the concept. I um, uh, graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary in 2014. I believe it was 2014 or 2015. It's all blurred to me, but <laughs> I, I can tell you that it happened. And, uh, and so I graduated, and I'm going to say 2014, uh, from Dallas Theological Seminary with a doctorate of ministry from what historically has been known in the evangelical settings as being a very prestigious seminary. 
Uh, they had famous professors of the likes of Lewis Perry Schaefer, uh, Dwight Pentecost, uh, John Wolverd, uh, Charles Ryrie, Chuck Swindoll, Howard Hendricks, Daryl Bach, and Daniel B. Wallace. If you ever went to seminary before and ever take a, a Greek grammars class, you're going to use Daniel B. Wallace's book. He wrote the book, the textbook, that teaches us how to translate Koine Greek into English. That all came from Dallas. Producing graduates of the likes of Bruce Wilkerson, Tony Evans, uh, Robert Jeffers, Chip Ingram, David Jeremiah, Hal Lindsey, J. Vernon McGee, Andy Stanley and John Townsend. If you've been around Christianity for 30 years, you know those are like high key figures in the movement of people who love the word of God and teach the word of God. There were two guys in particular, Howard Hendricks and, and Haddon Robinson, who worked at Dallas Theological Seminary, who basically trained the preachers of the 1980s. If you were a, no, a, a, a preacher of any kind of notoriety, you were probably trained by Howie Hendricks and or Haddon Robinson together. So you can imagine when I'm at Dallas and they say Haddon's gonna teach one more class. Haddon's since gone to be with the Lord now uh, in heaven, but he's gonna teach one more class at Dallas. He was uh, the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, but he's gonna come over to, to Dallas and teach one more class on preaching. I was like, sign me up, I am there. You know, and even into his late 80s and early 90s, he could milk an illustration and have you eating out of the palm of his hand with every detail that had come out of his mouth. He was prolific at this. I remember him telling a story about when he was a teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary. He says, there was a time when we had a student that came all the way from India. And uh, this was a pretty amazing student, kind of a savant, intellectual, theologically-minded Christian who wanted to double down and go to seminary. And we thought, we've never quite had a student like this and not from India. And so the school made a deal and said, you know what, we're gonna pay for every one of your expenses. We'll pay for your flights, your tuition, your room and board, everything you need, as long as you come here, get educated and promise that you'll go back to India and minister in India. To, to which the young man said, okay, and people don't realize this, but a lot of times people get saved, come to our country, get educated and then stay. <laughs> Why would we live? Let's, let's, why would we leave? It's awesome here, right? And, and so the idea was, no, you, you have to, the one condition is you're going to get educated and then go back. And this, this student had the caliber of being able to like start a seminary in India. And so the idea was, we'll invest in you. We'll send you back to India. In 50 years, that investment will return for Christ a thousandfold. And so he came, uh, per the promise, came, studied for many years, got his THM, went on to get his PhD, and then on graduation day, per his commitment, he's going to go back to India. So he walks across the stage, gets a diploma, heads on an airplane, back to India. Of course, he goes back, sees all his family that he's missed, sees all the regions that he's missed, sees all the establishments that he hasn't eaten in so many years because they don't have that in America, does all those pleasantries, and then goes to the family watering hole to take a swim as like an inaugural welcome back to India. And in a freak accident, he drowned. Literally a week removed from walking across the stage, at DTS, he drowned. If you're like me, hearing Haddon tell that story for the first time, I never knew this person, I never knew this name, I'd never seen a picture, but there was like a pit in my stomach hearing that story. Like all the potential. There's something about 
unmet expectations, unmet potential that just hits us in our guts. There's something about squandered opportunity that depresses us all, even when we don't know the person. Graduated valedictorian, dreams of a seminary, that was going to be an investment that multiplied a thousandfold in India for years to come. But he tragically drowned one week after graduating. Today I want to talk about how you can make sure that by the end of your time here on earth, there are no squandered opportunities, there are, aren't any unmet spiritual potentials that you could have had remaining for you on the earth. Well, well in, 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 in sports, we call it leaving it all on the field. We're gonna talk about how we can leave it all on the field spiritually. And we'll ask questions. How can we make sure to maximize our spiritual opportunities? And what can prevent us from this? Where, are the, where is the potential and where do the squandered opportunities reside? How can I realize God's best for my life? And how can I avoid spiritual deterioration? For that, we're going to be in your Bibles. I'd love for you to turn there. Luke chapter 19 and chapter 10. But we'll start at Luke chapter 19 together today. And the overarching question as you turn there, we'll look at verses 11 through 27. The overarching question is, what kind of results would we see in this life if we maximized every spiritual opportunity? What if we walked through life and, and looked at every situation as an opportunity, spiritually speaking? Americana, we're all about maximizing our opportunities. What if we did that, spiritually speaking, what kind of results would we see? In this life, if we maximize every spiritual opportunity, the first thing we're going to see is the realization of potential rewards. That there is the potential of a lot of rewards hanging in the balance. And if we were to double down and maximize every spiritual opportunity, we'd be able to realize those rewards. I want to take you to a story that Jesus said in chapter 19 of the book of Luke. You might recognize it, but let's read it together. It says this. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. That's right. And because he was, uh, because he was, because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, he received his kingdom. He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how they gained in doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 more mina. And he said to them, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. You might want to circle that, underline that highlight that. Because you have been faithful with the little, you'll be given more. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came said, Lord, here are your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you for, these, for your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I don't deposit and reaping what I don't sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and that my coming I might collect it with 
interest. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And he said to him, but Lord, he has 10 minas. And he says, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given, but from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What kind of results would you see in this life if you maximize every spiritual opportunity? The first is the realization of potential rewards. The realization of potential rewards. Now, I'm sure you've heard this story before. It's one of the more famous stories that Jesus ever told. Uh, in Matthew, it's called the parable of the talents. In Luke, it's called the parable of minas. Uh, but same idea behind the stories. And he probably told the story several times, and that's why you have different renditions of the same type of story. It's an interesting story. And the idea is to make sure that his disciples aren't discouraged when he doesn't uh, physically... Um, install his kingdom immediately as they think he's going to. It says in the first verse, they were near Jerusalem. Everybody thought that the new king would come and set, set his physical kingdom on Jerusalem. And so maybe Jesus is going to do it now. And, and the idea is Jesus going, wait, I, I know you expect that, but just so you don't get discouraged when I leave for a while, I'm going to give this story to you so you know what to expect. He tells a story familiar to many of us. There's 10 servants. Each one gets 10 minas to work business-wise while he's gone. A mina is about three months' worth of wages. 10 minas would be 30 months of wages. So about three years. I'm going to give you three years of resources to work for the kingdom, even though it's not physically established yet. And then I'm going to come back and physically establish the kingdom, evaluate you on what you did for the kingdom while I was gone, and then you'll get your rewards. But the kingdom's not coming right now, as you would expect. It's going to come one day. And so I'm leaving you with this for you to invest in the kingdom of God. Now, there were some who would be very happy, this would be like the disciples, to take Jesus' word and work for the kingdom of God. They left everything to follow Jesus. Then there were some who weren't very happy about his words and did not want him to be their king. This would be the religious leaders. And yet he's coming back to evaluate both is the idea. He'll return, he'll call his servants onto account to the one servant, I took your 10 minas, and it became 20 minas. He goes, well done, good and faithful servant. I'll now make you uh, preside over 10 cities. You've been faithful with a little, I'll give you more. And so the idea is, Jesus goes, establishes his kingdom, and now he needs rulers over that kingdom, and he's going to give you authority and give you a reward for doing so. The other servant comes back and says, I took your 10 minas, now it's 15 minas. He goes, well done, I'll give you five cities. Since you multiplied it fivefold, I'll give you five cities to preside over then there's one servant who does nothing with the 10 minas, not even collecting interest on it. It's the last servant, and really this is to uh, indict the religious leaders who neither wanted Jesus to be king nor ever expected him to come back. That's why they killed him off. We're going to kill him off. He'll never come back. He'll be a problem that's done away with. To their surprise, there will be a day where he does come back, and he calls them on the account for what they did while he was gone. He says, at the very least, you could have taken the monies and given it to the bank. You could have leased it to the bank. They would have set it out to borrow for the peoples, and they would have gave you at least some interest on the money. The very fact that you didn't do that tells me that you didn't want me to come back. You weren't interested in me coming back. You didn't want me to be king. That's just an excuse now. You know, it's interesting. The literal idea behind 
um, leasing out the money to the bank, if you were to translate that literally, it would be, you could have at least put it on the table. <laughs> when I found that, I went, this is crazy. We're doing this series called All In, where you push the chips to the center of the table, and then Jesus literally says, you could have at least put it on the table. Am I the only one who thinks that's cool? <laughs> anyway, you guys aren't convinced. Whatever. And so those are, uh, you know, the, according to how you take the investment and multiply it, you are rewarded accordingly. So the one that multiplies it tenfold, he gets ten cities. So the one who multiplies it fivefold, he gets five cities. And the idea is if you prove faithful with a little, you are rewarded with much. If you prove faithful with little, you are rewarded with much. I'm leaving. I'm not setting up the kingdom like you think right now, but I'm going to leave you, and you are to invest in the kingdom of God. When I come back, if you've invested well when you've been faithful for a little, I will reward you with much. I will come, and I will establish my kingdom, just not now like you think. I find this little story to be so applicable to us today. The punchline is very applicable. You see, there's many people that assume that the kingdom of Jesus is, that he presented was a figment of his imagination, Jesus leaves for a little while and it confirms their contention that the whole thing was a fraud. However, Jesus will come back and he will call them onto account to give an account for what they did with what he left them. And many will be disappointed when they finally actually comes back. Many will be disappointed when they find that he actually comes back. What's in mind here is two different judgments. There is something called the judgment seat of Christ, and there's something called the great right throne judgment. If you are a believer in Christ, you will be judged. I want to let you know, as your pastor, I'll let you know. You will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Your list of rights and wrongs, well, you'll stand before Jesus Christ sitting on his throne, and you will be evaluated by Jesus Christ, and you will buckle at your knees at that evaluation. Now we know because we believe in Christ and because Christ, uh, the Father, has granted us a pardon based on the blood of Christ that we will pass the evaluation. But it doesn't mean that it's not an evaluation. And it doesn't mean that we won't buckle at God in his sovereignty, sitting on the throne, judging us, evaluating us for what, what we did well and what we didn't do well for the kingdom of God. Everything done with a false motive will burn away. Everything done with the right motive will be rewarded. That is a judgment that every believer is headed for. If you're a non-believer and you don't believe in God, you don't follow Christ as your Lord and Savior, then there is a great right throne judgment. And that's what's talking about at the very end. That's the judgment right before he throws them in the lake of fire. And he says, they didn't want me. Well, I don't want them. Destroy them in front of me. And I find this story to be very applicable to us today because there's a lot of religious people. He's talking to religious people now. There are a lot of religious people that live as if he's never coming back. Think of all the missed opportunities, the potential rewards that are on the table. If I really believe that one day I'm gonna stand before him and he's gonna evaluate for what I did and what I didn't do, what I did with a good motive and a bad motive, what if I really bought into that and really believed that and really said, you know what? This is my priority in my life. Think of how many rewards. The potential of these eternal rewards are available if I took that seriously. Well, what kind of results would we see in this life if we maximize every spiritual opportunity? The first thing we would see is the potential for the realization of potential rewards that are available to us when we walk 
in the kingdom of God. Number two, we'll see the prevention of common religious hypocrisy. I want to take you to another story in Luke chapter 10, which, by the way, if you ever want to do a study on finances in your faith, Luke is your book. Luke spends a lot of time. He brings up several, several different times, and it's really attacking the heart of the religious leaders who are greedy and maybe even rich, going after them in that vein. Luke is your book, all about finances and faith, faith and finances. How are they intermingled together? We'll look at the prevention of a, the common religious hypocrisy that we see. I want to read this, another famous story. You'll recognize it right off the bat when I start reading it. Uh, it's known as the story of the Good Samaritan. Starting in verse 25, it says this. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put, uh, to put him to the test. That's never a good sign. He's not coming with the right motivation. He just wants to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answered, Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and then you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Go do this and you'll live. But, desiring to justify himself, another indicator that he's not coming from the right place, he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? What if I don't want to love my neighbor? Maybe we can qualify this thing so I don't have to follow it. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers and, who stripped him and beat him and departed and left him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, this would be great for you to underline, highlight, circle in your Bible, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the what? The other side. So likewise, a Levite, another place you could highlight, circle, underline. When he came to the place where he saw him, he passed on the other side as well. But then a Samaritan, circle that one, highlight that, underline that. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion on him, and he went to him and bound up his wounds and poured oil and wine on them. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, you need, whatever more you spend, I'll repay that when I get back. And Jesus says to the young man, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy... And Jesus said to him, then go and do likewise. What kind of results would we see in this life if we maximize every spiritual opportunity? Well, we'd see the prevention of what is commonly understood as religious hypocrisy. I'm sure you've heard of the story of the Good Samaritan before, or at least you've heard the title. I've heard that Good Samaritan title before. You need to be a Good Samaritan. You hear those kind of things in, in normal, everyday nomenclature. And we get caught up in this idea of, hey, a down-and-out guy gets, you know, uh, helped by a nice guy. But we miss some of the intentionally placed characters in the story. Did you know that this story is more about religious hypocrisy than anything else? Like Jesus goes out of his way. He, could, he, he, he grabs this story out of thin air. He can do whatever he wants with it. That's the beauty of parables. I'm making up this story, and I can make... The characters, whoever I want them to be, and he goes out of his way to highlight a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And we just jam past them and go, well, we should get good to our neighbor. Wait, no, you, you might have missed the whole point. It's all about religious hypocrisy. Let's look at these, these, these figures. The priests. These were folks who were specifically coming of the line of Aaron. You could not be a priest. You had to be of the tribe of Levi, of the line of Aaron. 
Le, uh, uh, Levi was Moses' brother who was the first priest in Israel, and they were to religiously lead the people. And so a priest had to be a very specific person within the line of Levi, and they would be the ones who would live out religiously what everybody else was expecting of a religious person. They're the ones who would take care of the sacrifices at the temple and the tabernacle. They're the ones who would lead in all these religious activities. And that's the guy coming down from the temple. Did you notice it said he came from Jerusalem going down to Jericho? Well, that's a little important little tidbit in this story because that means he's coming off of work. I was just at the temple taking care of my religious activities, religious duties that people are depending on me, on me for, uh, whether it's sacrificing animals so that they can feel like they've been clean before God. That's an important tidbit because in the back of his mind, he could say, well, I can't touch a dead body because if I touch a dead body, then I would be ceremonially unclean. If I'm ceremonially unclean, then I can't do all the activities I'm supposed to do on all these people that are relying on me. If he's going from Jericho to Jerusalem, that matters because that means everybody that went up there to, 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 to get right with God can't get right with God because he's on duty. But if he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, it doesn't matter because now I can become ceremonially de defiled. I can go do the, the whole process to get clean again and I can tell some other priest you gotta take my spot because I'm ceremonially defiled. And so he takes the excuse right out from him. He's coming down and yet he says, oh, I can't deal with that. I'm gonna cross the street over here. The second guy is a Levite. This again would be the tribe chosen by God that was reserved for religious activity. So if you were of the tribe of Levi, uh, uh, the Le Le Levite, the, uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, they were selected as you're going to be the tribe. You're not going to inherit any land. You're going to take care of religious activities. And all the other 11 tribes will fund this for you. You don't have to worry about anything because you're going to be funding, you're going to be doing all the religious activities and they will fund it for you. Now, just because you were in the tribe of Levi didn't make you, make you a priest. You had, to be, you had to be of the line of Aaron to be a priest. But if you were a Levite, you were to help with all the religious activities. So you were the right-hand men who would help all the priests. So this is like one step removed from uh, priestly leadership. You weren't doing the sacrifices yourself, but you were making sure that the priests had everything they need so they could do all the sacrifices. That guy who represents the religious establishment, he walks down, coming from Jer uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. He's off duty, and he walks across the street too. He'd even be less likely to be concerned or needed, so if he became ceremonially defiled by touching a dead body, he would be even less likely to hamper the religious activities and yet he says, I can't deal with that. I'm not going to, you know, talk about the clog in the wheel of my day. I'm just going to walk over here and I didn't, I'll just ignore it. Then the third character in the story is a Samaritan. Villainized as half-breeds because either mom was a Jew and dad was a Gentile or dad was a Jew and mom was a Gentile. They're considered half-breeds. They were uh, segregated their own people group, their own land. Jews didn't associate with them. Much like they didn't associate with women, they didn't talk to women. I, if I'm a man, I talk to my wife, but no one else. There's actually something worse than talking to a woman in first century Jewish settings, and that would be talking to a Samaritan. So you can imagine when Jesus Christ in John chapter 4 goes to the well and talks to a woman who is a Samaritan. What are you doing? And here he makes the Samaritan the hero in the story, and the religious folks are the dogs in the story. Do you know, um, Samaritan had become uh, 
the nomenclature of the day was the word Samaritan became a bad word. So just think of the worst bad word you can think of, and that was Samaritan. I mean, Jesus, you're not scoring any points in telling this story. The religious people, you make dogs. The Samaritan, which is a curse word, we don't associate with them. We don't talk to them. We don't walk in their land. We don't step on their dirt because then there would be the dust of dirty people on our feet. So we walk around Samaria because we would never do that because I'm a devout Jewish person. You're not winning any points with this story. The priest is the dog. The person representing the religious establishment is the dog of the story. And the Samaritan, the half-breed, the despised, the lowest of the low in society, the curse word, he's the hero? And how is he heroic? Well, he helps the guy, cleans up his wounds, and then picks two days' wages. That's what a denarii is, is a day's wage. Two days' wages out of his pocket offers to pay for any additional expenses that might arise. He takes his own resources to help the man. There's one last bit of irony in the story, and that is that the person who brings the question to Jesus is a lawyer. Depending on what translation you have, you might have lawyer or scribe. This is a person who is an expert in the religious law, someone who spends their entire day reading it and writing it down, copying it down. They're copyists, they're scribes. That's what they do, they write it down spend their entire day reading religious law and copying it down. And yet he came to him with obviously the wrong motivation because he just wanted to test Jesus. And then he says he wants, to, he wants to justify himself in the process. And here is the, iron, the, the ironic truth. You can read and copy the word of God all day long. You can even tattoo it on your body. But if you don't put it to work, it means nothing. It means nothing. Finally, Jesus asked the lawyer and the scribe who was there, and he asked him, he goes, which in the story, which is the person who's the neighbor? And the man says, well, the one who showed him mercy. You know what's interesting about that statement? He couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. Did you catch that? He had to say, well, the one who showed him compassion, the one who showed him mercy. Not the Samaritan. Because we don't talk to them, we don't associate with them, we don't even say that word. The hero in the story is the despised, and the religious in the story are viewed as hypocrites. Why? Because this guy had compassion and said, you know what, I'm willing to get my pocketbook out and make a difference for a person I don't know. Now, I could tell you, our church is not a church that has a problem with being good neighbors. Since I've been here, we've done 15 or so initiatives. All every, our one stipulation on the initiative is that we can't benefit. That's, that's the one stipulation. Whatever we do, we just cannot benefit. So whether it's because we needed uh, to help out the, the rescue mission and, and we asked you to bring water because it's summertime, water's come. Socks, because it's wintertime, socks come. Whether we're helping out, um, you know, drug habilitation folks and, and trying to get themselves straight and they need, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, diapers or wipes, we get diapers and wipes. We did a, we did a thing where we asked, hey, we want to start a church in Columbia, South America. We need $33,000. Boom, it comes. Would you also adopt the kids that are going to be, or not adopt, but sponsor the kids that are going to be affected by this church that we started in Columbia? Sure. 
People jump on. We did one recently in May where we said, you know what? There's a problem in L.A. County called child sex trafficking. We want to kind of do away with that. We're going to raise awareness and let you know that's happening right here. And then I met with somebody in our church who happens to work in Ventura County. This is David Hackman's in Ventura County. And so we want there's an organization that's taking these girls and rehabbing them, rehabilitating them, restoring their life that they never had. They drive around in a janky van that's going to break down any second. Would you get $45,000 and see if we can buy a new van? Boom, three weeks, $45,000 comes in. They have a new van. What do we do? There's still two weeks left in, in May. Oh, I know what I'll do. Let's tell them, would you now go get gift cards? Because they have these sponsors, these, these, these advocates that meet with these girls. And they, and they like mother them and tell them about Jesus. And say, you know, you have your court appointment on this day. And you have your, your, your parole officers on this day. And make sure that you're dressed this way and supporting them. And Ellie County said, you know what? When there's a, 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 a Zoe advocate for these girls, they do better than when they don't. We want more advocates. And so we said, we can't be advocates. You have to be trained. You have to all these different things, background, all this stuff. But you know what we can do? We can fund the meal where that interaction happens. And like $4,000 came in to fund these meals. And then you guys don't know this, but I'll get a call next week. I want to let you know we had a crisis situation. We got a girl off the streets. She was in danger with her family. We were able to put them up in a hotel. And we gave them three days of food. Because your church gave us these gift cards. They're going to be taken care of until we can triage the situation and get them in a safe place, a more permanent setting. We use those gift cards for that situation. That was you. That was you. Our church has not been, there's nothing we can bring that, that hasn't been like full-fledged taken. Uh, if you stick around in January, we're going to do one for Ventura County um, peace officers. They're demoralized right now. Um, I've talked to some of them. We're going to make sure they're encouraged. In May, we're going to do one. There's little kids dying of diarrhea every day in, in, in third world countries, and we're going to do something about clean water in May. If you hang out with us, we'll keep on doing it. We'll do something for others who don't even know Jesus just because of the compassion that's in our hearts. We are not a church that's in danger of not being good neighbors. But this idea of religious hypocrisy is one that must be resisted, and we should know about it. And Jesus talked about it. Think of the aid given to the man on the side of the road. Two days' wages, all in brotherly love. The type of brotherly love that can change the world. Which brings me to the big idea. There is endless potential should we view ourselves as stewarding God's resources. There is endless potential should we view ourselves as being stewards of God's resources. Not my resources, I don't own them. They're his resources. I just steward them for him. Endless potential. Endless potential in the sense that there's eternal rewards for the taking. Nothing you do on this earth for the kingdom of God will, you, will ever be forgotten at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. Endless potential in the sense of if we resist this temptation towards hypocrisy, look what we can do in the kingdom for God. Complete side note. For our denomination, I kind of triage the church planners that come into L.A. area. Um, we have two right now. I just got last week like three more emails, people who want to come and, and start a church somewhere in L.A., Orange County, all that kind of stuff. And we're running out of money. We're running out of money. Like we, we've, we, we're giving to, to Ken in L.A. We got, we got Tracy in Rialto. We're running out of money. And I got these guys who want to go for broke for Jesus. If we had an influx of money, we'd give more. Um, complete side note. But I'm just like, 
That is what it's all about. The things that we can do, the endless potential should we view ourselves as stewarding God's resources, not ours. And by the way, the potential there isn't simply whether you had a good head start or not. Let me show you what I mean. My favorite story in all the Old Testament is Joseph. Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50. I challenge you to go read it this week. It'd be the most refreshing story you'll ever read. Unbelievable story. Guy wakes up one morning, again, these dreams from God. Brothers are jealous. We don't like those dreams. You seem to be the one who rises up better than all of us. Fine, we'll, 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 we'll sell you into slavery. <laughs> they sell him into slavery. He ends up hanging out with the captain of the guard for the Pharaoh. That's his master, Potiphar. Basically, his job is to be the secret service and make sure nothing ever happens to the Pharaoh. Well, this guy sees Joseph, who's his slave, and says, anything I give to that guy turns to gold. Give him more, give him more, give him more, until he's second in charge of the whole house. There's only two things you can't have. You can't have my money, you can't have my wife. Then his wife goes, wow, man, Joseph's kind of good looking, and he, man, everything he does touch, turns into gold. I want him to touch me. And he's like, I'm not gonna do that. You're my master's wife. She goes, fine. Hey, everybody, he tried to push himself on me. So he ends up in jail. What does he do in jail? He just keeps on living for God, and he becomes like second in charge of the jail. All of a sudden, there's people having dreams and nightmares. He goes, I know what your dream means. It means you're going to get out tomorrow. But when you leave, don't forget me. Of course, they do forget him, and he's in jail for two more years. Stays in jail for two more years until the Pharaoh himself is having dreams and he can't sleep. And then the guy remembers, oh, there was this guy in jail who could read dreams. I bet you, you could bring him here, and he would, he'd be able to read your dream for you, and that way you can go back to sleep. Bring Joseph to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I want you to interpret my dream. He goes, I can't interpret any dreams. Only God can interpret dreams. But tell me the dream and I'll see, see what God says. Tells him the dream. He interprets it for me. He goes, boom. Since you interpreted it for me, I'm going to put you in charge of all of Egypt. There's a famine coming according to that dream. You're going to be the one who stocks up all the seed to make sure that we have abundantly during the season of famine. So he places him second in charge of the entire Egyptian kingdom. Puts a ring on his finger. Puts clothes on him. It's said in, in, in Genesis, I think it's 41 or 42, it says that when, G, when Joseph walked into town, they would shout, make way! Joseph's in town. When you put the ring on his finger, it's as if you're saying, you cross Joseph and you cross Pharaoh. Two different situations in that story. He was second in charge of Potiphar's house, second in charge of all of Egypt to the Pharaoh. Do you know what we call those people? We call them stewards. Stewards. Like he was a steward to Potiphar. He was a steward to Pharaoh. And basically, he had all the authority as if he was Potiphar himself or Pharaoh himself, but he owned nothing. I want you to catch this. A steward is someone who owns nothing but has everything. You follow that? I own nothing. I'm a slave to Potiphar. I own nothing. I'm owned so clearly but I have everything because I'm second in charge of the house. Then Pharaoh, you're certainly not the Pharaoh. I own nothing. I own none of his kingdoms, but I have everything to where they're shouting, make way, Joseph's in town. He was a steward. And I wonder, I just wonder, what if God would have us use that model for ourselves? Like we're stewards of God's everything. He owns it all. I own nothing, but I have everything. I own nothing, it's all yours, but I have everything. If that's the model, and if in doing so, 
we would see the endless potential because we're stewards of God's resources and not requiring ownership of our own. There is endless potential should we view ourselves as stewards of God's resources. Endless in the sense of rewards, eternal rewards. Endless in the sense of the amount of good that can be done when we resist spiritual hypocrisy and greed. It's the age old, can you put your money where your mouth is? Do you really believe this thing? If you can, great things can be done for the kingdom of God. You know, we start off today with a story that left a pit in your stomach. And I wonder if you ever feel that same pit in your stomach with the squandered opportunities, the unmet potential that we're leaving out there when we're not investing in the kingdom of God. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I wanna let you know something If you're here in the room, outside, online, I'm not trying to dog you. I'm not trying to dog you. In fact, I don't even think Jesus was trying to dog the individuals that came to him and questioned him. I believe he was contending for their souls. So all I'm doing here, we're not in need, is contending for the soul in the inner heart of the man and woman in the room or online. Does he have your heart? Are you truly all in? And what if you were? What could be done for the kingdom of God? And by the way, whatever you do for the kingdom of God, none of it will return void. There will be a day where you give an account and you'll be rewarded for every cent, every hour, every ability used for his kingdom. Can you resist the temptation towards spiritual hypocrisy? Father, I think of this series, and I think <laughs> so many people walk in and go, oh, that's great, and they don't even realize that I'm battling my own heart inside, going, wait, they don't know, like, the attitude I have with my wife this week, they don't know, like, the selfishness of my own heart, or, or the greed, and the little hands of greed that come over me at times as well, and, and here I'm wrestling with your word, trying to present it like I think Jesus Christ meant it, and yet knowing I'm human knowing that I'm frail and weak, knowing that I don't measure up to the things I'm saying. And yet, I think that's beautiful because that's where all of us are in the room right now. We don't measure up to what you say, but we're striving for it. And our job is to take wherever we are now and take that one step in your direction, one step towards you. Help us take that one step towards you. Because when we do, we never regret it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor David, for that message and that challenge to take a step closer to Jesus Christ. You know, some of us in here, uh, maybe you came as a guest, you're checking this out, and you've never taken a step towards Jesus. And today might be the day that God's drawing you in to do that. I know it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, For it is by grace that we are saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves; it's a gift of God not by works that so no man may boast. What that's saying is that God, by we need God's grace in our life because of the sin we have. And that grace, we receive it through faith. And that's a gift from God. Um, and he's wanting to give you that gift. And maybe you can, maybe today's the day that you take your first step towards Jesus. 
where you say, I need that. I've, Lord, forgive me for the sin in my life. Accept me into your kingdom. Give me your grace, which I need so desperately. If you're at that point where you're ready to take that first step of faith and turn away from the world and turn towards Jesus, uh, we want to be here with you for that journey. Uh, there's people ready to talk with you at the welcome counter on the left-hand side of the lobby. And if you're online, uh, go to campcc.net and click on Next Steps. There's a little form you fill out, and one of our pastors will get back to you. Um, we really do want to be part of that journey with you. For everyone else, we're going to um, give back to the Lord right now. It's one of the ways we worship Him in this place by being faithful what the Scriptures asked us to do. There's three ways to participate, as you can see on your screen. All right, before we go, let's uh, check out this video of what's coming up next. Hey, CamCC, I'm David Hurtado, your lead pastor here at CamCC. I'm so glad that you're here with us. And if you're here for your first, second, or even third time as a guest, we have some gifts for you. It's a thank you for hanging out with us. We'd love to be able to put a face with a name. So if you take your connection card and go to the welcome count in the lobby and present it to them, we can give you some gifts. And if you're watching online, you can go to camcc.net forward slash next steps and you can tell us about yourself as well. We also want to say if you're new to our church or new to church in general and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Same thing, go to the welcome count in the lobby, let them know that you're new and you'd like a Bible and we'd get you one. I'm so excited about this fall. It's a great season to invite someone to church with you, co-workers, neighbors, friends, family. Check us out and check us out online and maybe one day they'll be willing to sit next to you in church as well. Now let's check out what's happening at Camp CC. Hey, September 4th, we're starting our growth group sign up. So they're kicking off on September 18th and the week up. Get connected, get to know others, grow in your faith. It's just an eight week commitment on your life. It's where we go family deep together. Really consider this season, whether or not God's calling you to be in a group and maybe approach a new group for the first time. If you'd like more info on this, you can contact Jim Moyer at campcc.net. All right, calling all men on October 21st through the 23rd, we are having another men's retreat at a church. So CamCC men, we'd love to invite you for a weekend away in Malibu, the hills of Malibu, where Rob Orm will be teaching us about biblical manhood. It's plenty of downtime, outdoor activities, games, or just relaxing. You want to visit the men's table outside on the patio for more information on that. Hey, listen, and on the last note, I'm super excited about this. Uh, we are going to be sending out a letter, and it's really a letter from me to everyone in our church. It should be going out the first couple weeks of August. It'll reference something called the Welcome Project Initiative. It's a letter from me stating how excited we are for the future of our church, where we might be going, and who might be coming because of what we do in this season. And I'm not allowed to say that much about it. In fact, I'm not supposed to spill the beans. So just expect a letter coming from me about the future of our church uh, on what can be done if God would give us favor. Be expecting that at your door in your mailbox soon. on everything that's going on at CamCC, please consider following us on Instagram, liking us on Facebook, and you can even subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more information on any of these events, please go to camcc.net. Thank you to Pastor Dave for that great message today and just all those parables and examples he gave us. If you've ever seen me uh, out on the soccer field coaching my teams or uh, watching a Dodgers versus Giants game or even playing a sport, you'll know that the idea of leaving everything on that field resonates with me just going all in and putting it all out there um, today just really challenged me to just evaluate my life and where am I not going all in am I loving my neighbors who are those Samaritans in my life that I need to reach out to and do better if it's your first second or third time you can go on out to the welcome center we've got a gift for you we'd love to get that to you and get to know you a little bit online you can go to camcc.net slash next steps 
Why don't you invite someone with you next week as you come as we celebrate Labor Day weekend. Uh, great to see you today, and we'll see you next Sunday.